Well, let's open up together to the book of Exodus and chapter 17. The book of Exodus and chapter 17. And of course, if you don't have a Bible with you, if you forgot your Bible this morning, no big deal. Just uh, pull one out from the seats in front of you and uh, you'll find our passage this morning in those Bibles on page 59. Uh, Page 59. I want to begin this morning by asking you to consider a question. What is different between those who have the Holy Spirit living within them and those who do not. All of humanity can be separated into these two groups. Those who have been given the Spirit and those who have not. Would you say that there is only a small difference between the person indwelt by the Spirit and the person who is not? Or as I want to suggest, would you say that there is a vast multitude of crucial, vital, essential differences between the person who has the Spirit and the person who does not? Let me name just a few obvious differences that we know from the Bible. Uh, Number one, the person who has the Spirit within them knows Jesus truly and relationally. The person who has the Spirit trusts Jesus, loves Jesus, communes with Jesus. A person who does not have the Spirit does not know Jesus. The person who has the Spirit has had all of their sins forgiven. Their past sins, their present sins, their future sins. On the day of judgment, that person will be declared blameless in the sight of God, covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Spirit-indwelt people are going to heaven, every single one of them. And those who do not have the Spirit are still in their sins. And they must still pay for their sins. And they will not go to heaven. They will go to hell. The person who has the Spirit of God within them has the very power of God within them. As they read and as they study the Bible, the Spirit is opening their eyes. The Spirit is giving them understanding. Even in a preaching service like this, the Spirit is working in that person's mind to open it to understand, to, to mold their heart. The Bible is for the Spirit-indwelt person, a lamp unto their feet, a light unto their path, a key to living wisely and blessedly in this world. But for the person who does not have the Spirit within them, the Bible is a closed book. They may read it all they want, but with little comparable spiritual benefit. For the person who has the Spirit of God within them, they are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and all the rest. And and not worldly love or worldly joy or worldly peace. 
the Spirit of God gives a deeper, truer, purer, God-given love, a God-given joy, a God-given peace. The person that has the Spirit within them has access to a kind of love and joy and peace that is beyond the understanding of the world. The world doesn't comprehend it. The world cannot have it. Um, It's like a person who's never tasted chocolate. They don't know what they're missing. The world talks about love, joy, and peace as if they know what those things are. But they've never tasted the kind of love, joy, and peace that the Spirit brings to a Christian soul. One more difference. The person who has the Spirit of God has a special bond with all others who have the Spirit of God. It is through the Spirit that we are united together as a Christian family. We have a bond in this room that is stronger than blood. We are united to the saints of old. Noah and Abraham, David, all the rest. We're united to brothers and sisters around the world who speak other languages. They have very different customs. They live very different lives. And yet we are one in the Spirit of God. We are united to one another in growing spiritual unity and love and compassion and care. To have the Holy Spirit is to be a member of the family of God, a brick in the new holy temple that Christ is building, a citizen of the holy kingdom, a part of Christ's bride, indeed a part of Christ's very body. But to not have the Spirit of God is to be alienated from all of that. It's to be separated from from all of this. The person who does not have the Spirit of God is not a part of the family of God and is not a part of this common brotherhood and sisterhood with believers from all over the world. We who have the Spirit of God are branches connected to the vine of Christ Jesus. But those who do not have the Spirit of God are unconnected branches. Though they may have breath in their lungs... They're spiritually dead. Well, every single person in this room either has the Spirit of God or does not. Um, We all start out without the Spirit of God. But by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, some of us have been granted the Spirit. It's all of grace. If we have the Spirit of God living within us, we cannot boast. We should be humbled to the dust that God has given us His Spirit. But very likely there are some in here this morning who do not have the Spirit and therefore do not even really understand what I'm talking about. And so I simply want to ask, do you have the Spirit of God within you this morning? Are you a spirit-indwelt soul? Can you say, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You say, Justin, I don't know. How, How does one get the Holy Spirit? How does one get to be a spirit indwelt soul? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's what our passage is about this morning. 
And I pray that God will open up our eyes and that He will give the Spirit as we hear from God's Word. Our passage this morning, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, it may seem short, it may seem relatively unimportant. It seems to be just another account of God performing yet another miracle for His people Israel as they wander in the wilderness. We've already seen God do this kind of thing multiple times. We're going to see God do this for Israel again in the future. So maybe this is just a minor passage in Israel's history of heading towards the promised land. And yet we can't look at it that way. Because in God's providence, the miracle that we read about in these seven verses comes up again and again and again in the rest of the pages of the Bible. This miracle that we are about to read was a singularly remarkable event in Israel's history. And when we come to the New Testament, this miracle gets referred to again and again as a gospel miracle. It was recorded for our benefit. This incident that happened thousands of years ago, it happened for our sake, and it teaches us about our relationship with God. It teaches us about our relationship with Jesus, and it teaches us especially about how we come to have the Spirit of God within us. So let's look at it. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 of Exodus 17. And this is the very word of God. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So first, I want to give just a brief overview of this passage. And then we're going to look to the rest of the Bible to help us understand it. So after my brief overview, we'll have three headings. A lesson from the Psalms, a lesson from Jesus, and a lesson from Paul. And we're going to look at how the Psalms and then Jesus and then Paul tell us about this passage in Exodus 17. So first, the overview. We see the people of Israel are on the move again. And they're still not headed towards Canaan. They're headed deeper into the Sinai Desert. 
Um, It's the opposite direction of the promised land to which they're supposed to be going. God is taking them to Mount Sinai first. Uh, He has big plans in store for Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, The people of Israel are so numerous that they can't all leave at the same time. Rather, the the nation moves in stages. One tribe leaves, and then another tribe leaves. And so it's in stages that they're traveling. There's a hierarchy of leadership here. God gives a command to Moses. Moses speaks to his people through his brother Aaron. It's the elders or leaders of the tribes who receive the word and then help the regular people carry out the command. And so there's a hierarchy here of leadership. And this has been the pattern of leadership that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus to this point, and we assume it continues here. Now the problem in our passage is lack of water. A very serious problem when you're traveling in the desert. We've already seen this problem come up before, and we saw God provide. But when you take thousands and thousands of people into the midst of a desert, you have to assume this is going to be at the top of your list of obstacles to overcome. And yet Moses is operating on faith. Moses is trusting in God to provide. And this isn't a blind faith. This isn't a foolish faith. It is God who has called Moses to lead his people to Mount Sinai. And Moses believes if God has called me to lead them there, God will provide what we need to get there. The question is this. When will the people of Israel finally understand that this God really does care for them? That he rescued them out of Egypt and he is going to meet their needs. And passage after passage after passage in this section of Scripture, we're asking the same question. When will these people stop grumbling and worrying and start trusting and resting? When will they believe their God? Well, as we've seen before, their frustrations get spent out on the leadership. We're told that the people quarreled with Moses, and it's a very strong verb in the Hebrew. It's a word heading towards violence. And Moses even tells God, I think these people are ready to stone me. So this is very serious. This nation, which isn't even truly a nation yet, is headed towards disorder. It's headed towards revolt. This whole project called Israel might be about to fall apart. Well, following the same pattern we have seen, the people grumble, Moses prays, and God provides. And the instructions to Moses are simply for him to go on ahead of the people. He's to take with him some of the elders of Israel, and they're to go on ahead to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also called Mount Sinai. So they're getting closer to the mountain, and Moses and the elders go on ahead of the rest of the nation, and they go up to Mount Sinai. Uh, The people are right now camping a little distant away from the mountain. They're at a place called Rephidim. Everybody say Rephidim. Okay, So that's where they are. So Moses and the elders go on ahead to the mountain. Remember, this is familiar land to Moses. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd in this part of the desert. He was serving his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro is going to come visit in the very next chapter. 
So Moses knows his way around. This is a place very special to Moses. This is where the burning bush experience took place. And so Moses takes these elders to the mountain. He carries with him the same staff that he used to turn the waters of the Nile River to blood. And when they arrive at the mountain, God shows Moses which rock he is to strike with his staff. In fact, God tells Moses, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb. What does that look like? (laughs) What does it look like when God stands? I have have no idea. Um, God is leading Israel in a pillar of cloud during the daytime, a pillar of fire at night. Maybe at this point that that pillar comes and rests over a particular rock. Um, But we're not told specifically what happened here. We're just told that in some way God made very clear to Moses which rock he was to strike. Moses strikes the rock and water comes pouring out. Uh, Where there had not been a stream, where there had not been a river, suddenly one comes pouring out of the mountain, out of this rocky outcropping. and, And it begins to form its way towards the camp at Rephidim. It begins to bring water to the people of God. And so Moses named that particular spot Massa and Meribah. That is the place of testing, the place of quarreling. And what a day this must have been. I mean, we have to put ourselves into the shoes of these Israelites, right? Your your mouth is dry, you're thirsty, you're beginning to wonder if you're going to die in this desert. And then suddenly you look out over the horizon and... And water is coming. And, and it's not a wave. It's, it's just running water beginning to carve its way through the desert sand. And it's forming a, a new riverbed. Uh, what a day of rejoicing this certainly was. As the people saw the water coming towards the camp. And it was yet another way that God showed to his people that he intended to care for them. And to meet their needs. If they would only trust. So. What can we learn from this passage and this miracle? First, a lesson from the Psalms. A lesson from the Psalms. The Psalms actually mention this account over and over again. And in the Psalms, the theme seems to be that our God is a faithful God to be feared. A faithful God to be feared. So, first, a God to be feared, Psalm 114, 7 through 8. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. In other words, do we not see the power of God in this passage? Uh, The psalmist looks at Exodus 17 and he says, Do you not see this is not a God to be trifled with? The whole world is at the disposal of this God. Water and rock are instruments in His mighty hands. Mount Hermon, the same God who did that act in Exodus 17 is with us in this room right now. The galaxy-creating God, the God of the plagues of Egypt, the God who rained bread from the sky and brought water from the rock. It is He that we have come to worship this morning. 
And there ought to be a real sense when we gather in this place of trembling in the presence of the Lord. There ought to be a holy fear of God in our chest. This is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord. Those who fear God most fear men least. Those who tremble before God walk in humility and integrity and see the world in its proper colors. I would simply ask you, do you have a holy fear of God in your soul? But then also the Psalms look back on this passage and they see that our God is a faithful God. In fact, remember what the Psalms are. They're songs. The people of Israel loved to sing about this event. Uh, And through singing, they taught about this event to their children and their their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. It it, it raises the question, right? What are we teaching in, in our songs? Well, in these Psalms, as they taught this event from Exodus, they were teaching the faithfulness of God. For example, Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel when he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Verse 16, he made streams come out of the rock. He caused waters to flow down like rivers. Verse 20, he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Or Psalm 105, 41, God opened the rock and the water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. So what do the Psalms say are the purpose of singing about this event? To teach your children and your children's children and your children's children's children to set their hope on God. To trust Him. To believe that He cares for His people. Don't despair over the troubles of your life. Don't give in to the temptations to try and meet your own needs or solve your own problems in some less than honorable way. Certainly, don't give yourself to living in worry, running the same details through your mind again and again, wasting quality time and energy that could be spent serving God and others. No. See that God always provides, sometimes just in the nick of time. But he always comes through for his people. He is a faithful God. That's the message of the Psalms about this event. Second, we have a lesson from Jesus about this event. And it comes in Matthew 4 when the devil is tempting Jesus. Remember, Israel wandered through the desert for 40 years. Well, Jesus has now been in the desert for 40 days. And he hasn't eaten, and he hasn't drank anything. Like Israel before him, he's in the desert, and he's thirsty. And the devil comes. And in one of those temptations, the devil takes Jesus, and he transports him to Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the holy temple. And the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. 
For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, Jesus, prove you're the Son of God by throwing yourself down from this temple and watch as the angels of God come and rescue you. And how does Jesus respond to that temptation? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He quotes a verse that says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But that's not the whole verse. <laughs> the whole verse is, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. In other words, one of the great lessons of what happened at Massa, our passage this morning, remember Moses gives the name to this place, Massa. One of the great lessons here is that we are not to put our God to the test. But what does that mean? Don't put God to the test. Well, we can put God to the test in at least two ways. First, we can test God by disbelieving in His power or His faithfulness and thus challenging God to prove His character to us. Isn't that what we have in our passage? Though God has shown His loving care and His great power to this people over and over again, it was not enough for them. They still did not believe. They're ready to stone God's prophet Moses. God is being put to the test. You say you care for us. You say you're with us. Prove it. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with asking God to prove it? Well, simply this, God does not owe us anything. And frankly, when someone is living in unbelief, God is not obligated to come and rescue them out of their trials. God would have been just and right to let unbelieving Israel perish in the desert right where they were. We cannot presume to tell God, to prove something to us. He judges us. We are not the judge of Him. But then that leads us to the second way that we can test God. We test God when we go in a direction that He has not given us to go, and then we expect Him to provide. Right? So God did not tell Jesus to throw Himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And had Jesus done so, he would have been presuming, he would have been assuming that even though God had not told him to do that, he was going to come and rescue him from the consequences of his own choice. But of course, Christ knew better. The question is, do we know better? Whether through disbelief or disobedience, are you testing God? Frankly, if you are walking in sin... Or if you are making bad choices, God does not owe it to you to rescue you. God does not owe it to you to save you from the consequences of your own choices. He's not obligated to step in and make things work out for you. Indeed, if you are a believing child of God, it may well be His will to do you good by causing you to experience the consequences of your choices, so that you will be humbled and turned from future sin. Or perhaps God will use the messes that we make through our sins to teach others that they should avoid those same sins. 
The point is this. We should never presume upon God. We should not put Him to the test by doing what He has not called us to do and then expecting Him to clean up our mess. Good fathers don't work that way. And let me ask you this. Has God not already revealed enough for you to trust Him? Has God not already proven Himself plenty for you to trust Him? Do you see how wicked it is to come to God and say, God, come through for me one more time, then I'll really trust you. Then I will really believe and walk in your ways. Just one more time, show me your power. God had done this for Israel over and over and over. They still wouldn't believe. God gives us everything we have. The strength in our bones and the clothes on our backs. God has given us a Bible where he speaks to us in a language we can understand about who he is and what he has done. Are we demanding something further from God? Do not be like the fool who prays for God to fix something in his life and then promises to start going to church or praying every day or reading the Bible once God has done that for me. God has done abundantly more than we could ever dream for, imagine, ask for. The question is, will we believe him now? Do we trust him now? Whether he fixes your current situation or whether he leaves you in your current situation, will you trust him? Will you believe he is working all for good, that whatever tomorrow brings, he, he is doing what is right? Will you trust that? Christians are called not to test God, but to trust God. Okay, so we've seen that our God is a faithful God to be feared from the Psalms. We see that we ought not to put our God to the test from Deuteronomy 6 and Jesus and Matthew 4. Finally, we have a lesson from Paul. And the lesson is this. Jesus is the rock from which we receive the Spirit of God. Jesus is the rock from which we receive the Spirit of God. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, we have these words. Listen carefully to these words from the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, there was a strange legend that had come up among the Jews, it was popular in the days of Jesus, that while ancient Israel was trekking through the wilderness over the next 40 years, this rock that Moses struck actually followed them around. That the rock just followed behind Israel wherever they went and kept, kept producing water for them. Now that was just a legend. The Bible doesn't teach that. But Paul is drawing on that legend in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says, you know what? There was a rock that was with the people of Israel wherever they went. It was a spiritual rock, and his name was Christ. Just as the physical rock provided water, giving and sustaining the physical lives of the people of Israel, 
So Jesus is the rock from which we receive the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit gives and sustains spiritual life. So love for God and love for your neighbor. Belief in the Bible. Hope for heaven. Joy and peace abounding. These all come from the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God can only be given by the Son of God, who is the rock from which the water of the Spirit comes. Indeed, some have pointed out that in Exodus 17, we kind of have a Trinitarian picture. The Father is probably the pillar of cloud resting over the rock. Jesus himself is pictured as the rock, and the Holy Spirit is the life-giving water coming forth from the rock. And so using these physical shadows, we have a picture of how we come to have the Holy Spirit. In John 3, a man named Nicodemus was trying to understand what it meant to be born again. Jesus taught Nicodemus about how a person must be made new. How? How does that happen? How does a person become new? Jesus said it is a work of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit that comes upon a soul and makes that soul a new creation. It is the Spirit of God that makes a person turn from their sin and desire holiness and desire to to grow in all that is good and right. It is the Spirit of God that gives faith in Jesus and sustains faith in Jesus. Indeed, uniting our very souls to Jesus, reconciling us to God Himself. And it is the Spirit of God who gives peace in the midst of the most severe trials. Ten years ago today, uh, my second-born son, David Elisha Nell was born. Many of you in here remember that. Ten years. It's amazing how time goes. David Elisha was born five pounds, ten ounces, around 9.45 in the morning. After Crystal and I had the opportunity to hold him and sing over him and pray over him and weep over him, God took him from us around 3.30 that afternoon. It was one of the most wonderful and hard days of my life. But Crystal and I, no doubt in part due to the prayers of this church for us, were sustained. By the will of the Father, Jesus the Son worked through the Holy Spirit and strengthened our faith when we needed it most. And by the grace of God, we did not fall apart. Instead, Psalm 139, 13 through 16, which is on David's tombstone, was very precious to us. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. But your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. We did not understand why God chose for David's time with us to be so short. 
we still don't understand, and we, and we don't have to understand. What we believe is that little David lived the one day that was formed for him, and that God was working in it for good. I share that this morning simply to give a testimony that Christ gives through the Spirit something that cannot be found anywhere else. There is a kind of peace in the midst of pain that can only be found by coming to the rock called Jesus Christ. I know no other place to tell you to look. I don't know anywhere else in the world where you are going to find the Spirit of God, the the waters of life. I simply ask you, do you have the Spirit of God? If you're an unbeliever in this room and you say, where do I look to find the Spirit? You look to the rock. You look to Jesus Christ. Tell Jesus how desperate you are to be saved. How you long to be forgiven of your sins. How you long to be changed. Let Jesus know I'm thirsty for the water of life that will change who I am and make me a new creation. And then believing that Jesus hears your prayer, come to the Word and drink and be changed by the Spirit of God. How do you drink of the fountain of living waters? You listen to Jesus and His Word. You trust Jesus in His Word. You rest in what He tells you. And you live in that faith. Almost done. Listen to this from Jesus. John 7, 37, 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. More than any other lesson, our passage teaches this to Christians and non-Christians alike. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe what He says and trust Him. Take Him at His word and live in His word and you will know what it is to have the Spirit of God powerfully at work in your soul for good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.